I just remember hearing the compressor constantly turn on and off and, you know, it's loud in there, uh, but I'm in my corner. It's not like he doesn't see me. I'm a six foot one dude that, you know, I'm, I'm not like invisible, you know? Um, and I was probably there for about two, two hours in the morning. And all of a sudden I, I feel him almost feel like he's close by some kind of like hunkering down and just kind of like trying to keep in my own personal space. And all of a sudden it felt like he fell on top of me or he hit me with something. And I'm on my knees. I'm like, dude, like watch where you're throwing that shit. You know, I thought maybe you dropped a two by four on me or, you know, tripped on me or whatever it was. Cause he was on a ladder. Um, and he's looking at me and he's coming down the ladder and he's like, wait right there. I'm going to go get your boss. And my boss is on the outside of the, the home performing a service change on the, uh, we had so much work on this property. So he goes, I'm like, well, shit, he must've cut me pretty bad if he's going to get my boss. So I went to check to see how big the cut was in my head. And I feel the head of the nail embedded into my skull. Awesome. Well, welcome to another episode of the Roadless Babble. Alex Djurjevic here. Uh, got Don it with me, and let's just say before uh, before I met him, we spent maybe I don't know thirty minutes on the phone before this episode, and like I had to stop him four or five times because like this is the most insane thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like, please don't tell me I want to hear the rest when we actually start recording. So, Don, why are you on this podcast? Who are you? What's the story? What's the what's the ten thousand foot view? <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for that. I, I think that uh, now people will be listening, expecting something incredible. And I'm just not that much of an incredible guy, right? <laughs> yeah, whatever, dude. Like uh, some, some of the stuff you told me, I was like, this is like a movie. <laughs> um, well, I'm a, a first generation uh, child of two immigrants that came to this country. Uh, grew up in the Midwest in Milwaukee. And uh, during my teenage years, my parents decided to move back. So we all moved back to what used to be known as Yugoslavia back in the day. Um, graduated from high school there and uh, came back to the U.S. at 18 and 88 and served, uh, started an apprenticeship as an electrician. Um, and that lasted a few years, had an industrial accident. Um, I guess we'll go into that a little bit deeper later. Yeah. Um, and uh, moved on from that uh, and, and served and completed an apprenticeship in uh, what used to be tool and die or pattern making, um, you know, in the tooling industry, iron industry, um, and did that for a number of years and had an opportunity to open up my own company in textiles. So I, I opened that up and um, uh, built that out for, literally from the basement up um, and ended up selling that company to one of our clients where they later brought me in to help with their production on U.S. flags and uh, turned them from uh, number five uh, production or uh, manufacturing company in the U.S. to number three. Uh, and then I was recruited for for an IT company, uh, only knowing from the from the front end of of things as far as e-commerce um, and what it did. You know, I did a lot of shopping on eBay and Amazon, and um, they were looking for somebody who was who had that, I guess that. Uh, experience of not only just being able to pivot and change careers and and adjust according to new environments, but also had that entrepreneurial experience. So uh, I ended up moving to Belgrade back in 2012 uh, and lived there for five years with my uh, with my family. 
And then in 2017, we came back to the States again, uh, in, uh, in, and now we're living in Arizona. So that's at, at, at a high level. Um, I know I missed a, a couple of uh, details there and, um, you know, meeting my wife for one of the vacations that I'd gone out there during my electrician days. And essentially, I think that that's why a lot of people saw the sales portion of me being able to sell stuff because I literally convinced her to marry me uh, over one date. Um, no. One date, next day, I proposed to her and, you know, we get hitched. And 27 years later, I've got two children and uh, a grandson. So. And you still like each other? Well, yeah, you know, you got to work <laughs> at it, right? <laughs> I love it, dude. That's um, awesome. Yeah. All right. All right. So let's, 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 let's go back a little bit. So you, you grew up in the Midwest. Um, and then when you're in high school, your parents decide like, Hey, let's move back to Yugoslavia. What is now Bosnia, the Northwestern part of Bosnia, mm-hmm. which uh, slight culture shock, I'm sure uh, for a teenage boy. Uh, <laughs> you know, even though you grew up in the Serbian American community, it's still, it's still different. I tell people all the time, you know, uh, here I'm a foreigner and there I'm a foreigner. I don't really belong anywhere because, you know, in, in America, I've got a little too much ethnic, you know, tinge to me. And then over there, I'm too American. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what your experience was like going back at, you know, as a teenager and, and having to readjust into that world. Yeah. And, you know, and you totally hit that. Um, it's exactly the way it felt whenever, you know, whenever you're here um, and even going to school uh, in junior high and, and grade school, you felt like essentially, you know, you, you got that feeling uh, that you were somewhat of a foreigner, right? Just yeah. because of the strong rooted beliefs that maybe you, you grew up in as a community. Right. But then going there, you know, I thought that I was going to be well accepted or that I was going to be able to integrate uh, fairly right, easy, right? Right. right. Uh, where it, it wasn't the case. I got there and and you're right. Like uh, people looked at me as being way too Americanized. And it it was it, it was like one of those where how are people asking me where I'm from? How do they, they know that I'm not from around here? Right. Right. Because um, you say but, somewhat, you, you speak Serb English, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you dude, <laughs> yeah. I. Slight side note, I work with some coaches from Montenegro uh, on on a couple of different things. And uh, one of them was like, so he was saying this in our language. He was like, but he was like, I love how you throw in I mean when you're speaking, (laughs) when you're speaking our language as like a filler word. I was like, shit, I do say that. And it's funny you say that because my cousins and I use, you know, when we're speaking in Serbian. Yeah. Instead of going smash or something like that, it's like, you know, you know. Yeah. So everybody else is going like, what does you, what does you know mean? You know? Right. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I'll tell you that first year was, it was a difficult transition and even speaking Serbian in the household living in the U S didn't prepare me for having to speak Serbian full-time or Serbo-Croatian full-time. Um, and also start developing new friendships, starting in a new school, um, learning, you know, even, the way math was being done differently. Uh, I had physics all of a sudden, which I never had ever in my life. Right. right so there right. were a lot of, a lot of adjustments and I was having migraines for probably the first three, four months, that adjustment period of not using English at all ever again. And then just specifically using Serbian. And I hated my parents for, I hated my dad uh, for, for making this move back. You know, I mean, mm. as a kid, even as a teenager, I think that there's a lot of things at least traditionally in, in you know European families, or at least Eastern Europe, where they they hide from you, you know they hide the fact that 
you know, listen, it's, you know, in the early 80s, there were the historically huge layoffs in the industry, in the foundry industry. I mean, my dad was a part of Desire Siri. My mom worked at Appleton Electrics. These were huge companies in Milwaukee. And they laid off thousands and thousands of people during the early 80s. Mm. So, you know, my parents being uh, the, 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 the savers that they were, had their house paid for and everything, and they decided to, you know, try something new and go there. But it's not something that they shared with us. They were just saying, hey, we're going. Yeah. <laughs> we're going on a new adventure, kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, back up, back up, bro. You, you don't get a say in it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I think, I think uh, we probably should have at least known what was going to happen. You know, give us a six-month notice. Right. <laughs> say our goodbyes to everybody, but. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, my parents told me we were coming to America, I think, probably December or November of mm -hmm. 99 and uh we came to america march 16th 2000 wow yeah I, I remember i just came home and mom was like you ready to go to america i was like what are you talking about <laughs> i just cried like a baby man yeah i did not want to go in fairness they didn't want to go either but they had yeah. no choice yeah yeah your your generation definitely didn't have didn't have a choice that was a lot probably a, well it was not probably it was way tougher on you and your families to leave everything behind versus kind of the way I went back and forth. Between yeah. I mean, I always tell people, things. you know, I was so young when the war started there and, and all the things that happened afterwards. And even like uh, up through the end of the Yugoslavian wars in 99, you know, I'm old enough to remember that, but I was in Germany at that point. Um, I've had a really easy life. Like I've got no trauma from it. Some of mm -hmm. the trauma, I guess maybe that I have is like going back to Bosnia and seeing the destruction as like a five, six, seven, eight year old. And, um, yeah. It's like when I hear these psychopaths talking about, you know, going to war, like World War Three nuclear war with Russia. I'm like, you mm -hmm. have no idea what you are asking for. Yeah. Like the number one objective of humanity in this very moment should be that there is an end to any escalation whatsoever. Completely like I don't give a I don't give a crap what your political opinions are. I don't care what your uh, nationalistic leanings are. I don't care. I don't care about any of that. The only objective of humanity at this moment is avoid the destruction of our species. Absolutely. <laughs> like you Absolutely. psychopaths. Sorry, no, I had to go on that rant because no, these people no. are really pissing me off. Well, I, well, I agree with you. you and you, it doesn't matter what news channel you turn on anymore nowadays. That's it, It's like the direction. So you're absolutely right. And I think that for the most part, I think that we have a memory span as a, as a, as a human race, at least, you know, so we're fed so much into our minds from TV and from the internet and, and everything else that we read or that we pick up that we somehow managed to forget the past 50 and a hundred and 2000 years. And all of these things that happened that were taught to you by your family members that were taught mm -hmm. to you by history books. And you're just thinking about these last 10 or 20. Um, and for some reason, it's so easy for people to say, well, let's go to war. And you're right. These are people that have never had to experience something on their home turf Right. To, uh, you know, those are the comments from those type of people. I'm not saying people here in the U.S. I'm saying in general. Well, um, let's call it out here in the U.S. All the mm -hmm. people on TV, all these politicians, like the, the most anti-war people that I know are all veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Yeah. All yeah. of them. Every single one. They've Why? seen the horrors. Yeah. Well, when you've had your buddy blown up by an IED, your perception of what war is is a little bit different than the asshole who's played Call of Duty. Absolutely. <laughs> so like, yeah. you know, I've never been a soldier, but I, I know what it's like as a child 
and as a young adult to see the destruction of war, to physically see what that destruction means, to go to my village's graveyard and see children born in 90 and died in 94. What the hell do you think they died from? And that's that's the worst. I mean, I can't, you know, we've had family members. Fortunately, most of our family managed to to get somewhere. Right. Um, either U.S. or Australia or, uh, you know, parts of Europe that are more westernized, you know, Germany, and, um, Austria, Slovenia. Yeah. So, but uh, we we know family members that have have been in that circumstance that have lost last young ones or it's just horrible. How do you even I, I can't even imagine uh, what what it's like to have to to live after that, you know? So, yeah, it's it, it truly is horrible. And just um, well, let's change topics a little bit. Yeah. Cause I, can, <laughs> I can rant about the insanity of our society on that front for days. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you you move back to Yugoslavia. You grew mm-hmm. up in in northwestern Bosnia and in, in Bihać, um, and then you come back to the United States. Yeah. Okay. So now you've been a foreigner in in Bosnia for a couple of years. Now you're going to come back to being a foreigner in America. How did that go? That was uh, that was weird as well. You know, I'm trying to reconnect with some of my friends, and not only in uh, you know my American friends that I grew up with in in school, but uh, right also with some of the friends in the community um, in our, in our, you know, Serbian community. And it was just mm. weird because again, your, your mindset and your ideals and the way you view the world is completely different than if you would have stayed there right. um, in that community. Right. So they're like looking at you like, who's this guy and what does you do with Dane or Donnie? Yeah, <laughs> <Right? Don. laughs> um, so it, it was, uh, it was again, another, another term where like it took me a year to kind of fit in for, you know, fortunately at, at that time, you know, like I'm 18, right. I'm starting to, I'm trying to find new jobs. I'm, I, you know, I, I was working on getting an apprenticeship as an electrician. Uh, that was something that I went to high school for in, in Bosnia. Um, and it was, it was my interest. That was like, I loved doing that. Mm. Um, so I, I guess it wasn't as difficult. I was older. Um, I'd grown accustomed to change already right. in transitions. You'd become adaptive. Yeah. And I had a different focus. It wasn't anymore about just having friends or, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an extrovert, you know, I mean, that's probably why I'm in sales, but uh, for the most part at that time, like my main focus was get a job, start making money, try and help your parents to come back, you know, convince mm-hmm. them to come back. Cause they were still there. Right. Um, and nobody knew about the war any or anything, but yeah, they ended yeah. Up nobody, coming. the war yeah. started in 91. Nobody thought there was exactly. going to be war in 90. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Here's the three-year plan people. So make sure yeah. you leave, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I tell you, this is another thing for all the, uh, warmongering idiots out there. I talked to my dad about it all the time. He was like, my dad actually told me this a couple of weeks ago. He was like, would you believe me that until the night before the war, we were all hanging out at the cafe together. Yeah. None of us actually thought it would happen. Yeah. No, that's anyway. yeah. But no, you're right. Um but at so, that point <laughs> yeah. yeah, at that point it's too late. At that point, <laughs> yeah. at that point you strap up because somebody because somebody else is giving you a gun and telling you to go kill your neighbor. Not because you want to, but because they'll kill your family instead. Exactly. It's no, insanity. I think that, that was the same thing in Bihać. Uh, a lot of my my a couple of my aunts and uncles uh, were there, and they we ended up, you know, helping them get out. But it was years, you know, during 
during the war where um, right. where we were at that point trying to get them out. So, so you, that, you you come back to America, you're you're readjusting, you're wanting your yep. apprenticeship and in, in as an electrician. Yeah, and uh, I'm in my probably in my third or fourth year already, um, enjoying the job, and I, uh, you know, I'm working on this this expansion of a home, uh, putting in a almost like a sub panel, right? So I'm putting in uh, new breakers for this addition these people put in, and the you know hot tub and all this stuff. So we're working with other contractors. We're working with plumbers in there. We're working with carpenters, and um, I've been I was working that morning. Um, that fateful morning on August 23rd, 1991, um, on a side panel inside that expand of that addition and a carpenter that was working, kept on inching his way near closer to me. And he was nailing up almost like, uh, they're like, ru- they're called runners or whatever for the cathedral ceiling. So they're using these four inch size spike nails. Oh. And, uh, I just remember hearing the compressor constantly turn on and off and, you know, it's loud in there, uh, but I'm in my corner. It's not like he doesn't see me. I'm a six foot one dude that, you know, I'm, I'm not like invisible, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was probably there for about two, two hours in the morning. And all of a sudden I, I feel him almost feel like he's close by. So I'm kind of like hunkering down and just kind of like trying to keep in my own personal space. And all of a sudden, it felt like he fell on top of me or he hit me mm. with something. And I'm on, on my knees. I'm like, dude, like watch where you're throwing that shit. You know, I thought maybe he dropped a two by four on me or, you know, tripped oh, on me or whatever gosh. it was. Cause he was on a ladder. Um, and he's looking at me and he's coming down the ladder and he's like, wait right there. I'm going to go get your boss. And my boss is on the outside of the, the home performing a service change on the, uh, we had so much work on this property. So, he goes, I'm like, well, shit, he must've cut me pretty bad if he's going to get my boss. So I went to check to see how big the cut was in my head. And I feel the head of the nail embedded into my skull. Oh man. And this is I'm like making my stomach turn. Oh gosh. <laughs> um, I still have the x-ray to this day. I have the nail that I, I always talked about nickel plating it or gold plating it, but it's still that rusty nail that they pulled out of my head. <sighs> it was clean when it was in my head. Nine right, hours right, later right. after the surgery, it was all somewhat rusted from the chemicals, I guess, in my brain. But I, at that point, um, I had just turned 21 a month prior to that on July 22nd. And then August 23rd, this happens. Um, and I'm like, I see my boss coming in and my boss almost has tears in his eyes. Like, you know, we were close. He was close with my, my parents after I got the job. Like, you know, we, yeah. we were this one larger family unit, you know? And, um, he holds me. I'm like, you know, I, I'm still trying to like, yeah, you're you know, in, shock. Is it in my head. Like, I can't believe that this thing is in my head. Right. I can't believe I'm talking, you know, and he's like, just, you know, hold on. Everything's going to be okay. We just call the ambulance, you know, thank God I was literally 10 minutes away from Freighter hospital in Milwaukee, um, which Freighter hospital is probably has one of the best um, groups of surgeons when it comes to brain surgery in the nation. Um, but they still couldn't figure out how to pull it out right away because they're like, uh, well, your brain's like a cob of webs and all of these right, things. Right, so right, right, right. I waited there for seven, eight hours that day. And finally, they decide, okay, this is what we're going to do. But we need you to decide if you'd rather have us punch a big hole in your head, like saw a big hole in your head, right? 
and pull it out. And then we can go in and swab if there's any leaky blood because we don't know if you're bleeding internally or not. Um, or we can drill a bunch of holes around the nail to relieve the pressure and then just pull it out. Oh, gosh. And I'm like, dude, like you're the doctors. Why don't you tell me what, you know, I go, what's the prognosis on either one of these? He's like, you're pretty much looking at 50-50 on whatever you decide. Oh, gosh. And he's like, if you do survive this, he's like, you most likely are going to have some type of brain damage. You're not going to be able to function 100% the rest of your life. And it's like, I was in shock. I was pissed. I was looking at my parents going, I don't want to have my parents change my diapers the rest of my life. Like there were all so many different emotions going on, you know? Right. So what did you choose? Uh, I chose the, uh, I chose them to, to cut a big hole in my head to, to make sure if I was bleeding that they could swab out the blood and, and save as much of me as possible. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it was like, and then I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, I'll choose that, but shit, if, you know, if this is the way to go, cause I'm not, I don't have that brain swelling yet. Yeah. I don't have any headaches and your nerve yeah. endings, you know, they're not in your brain. So I, I mean, as much as pain I was feeling, it's not like I had a nail in my heart or in my arm right. or somewhere. Where, right. Um, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, as bad as things may be, this isn't the worst way to go. Right. Cause right. I don't feel too much pain. So if I just fall asleep, that's yeah, it. you'll just be gone. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we had, I think it was like a nine or 10 hour, 12, uh, 10 uh, hour brain surgery. They had to keep me up through the uh, whole ordeal. They needed to make sure that I was still aware, cognitive, uh, motor functions, everything. Um, and so they were talking to me the whole time. And I, I actually told them, and you'd know the analogy, but I told them, don't worry, I'm Bosnian. I can handle it. <laughs> because you know what we have in our heads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, but, uh, then it was three years of rehab. Um, I didn't realize it, it had changed me completely. Uh, it, it changed the individual of who I was prior to the accident compared to who I was after that. I was a new Donnie, um, for the better in some cases, but in many cases also, you know, um, my equilibrium was off, motor skills were off. Um, I had to relearn a lot of the things on the job as an electrician. Um, could not figure out for the heck of me how to tell the time. Mm. I would I would look at the I would look at the clock and know it's three o'clock and see in my eyes that it's three o'clock, but every time I want to say it, it would I would say it's nine o'clock. Mm. Or if it's six o'clock, I would say it's twelve o'clock. You know, it was just insane how your your mind um translates things that your eyes, your visuals see, and then you and then you know then you say it. But um that and you know, emotionally, I was just a mess, you know, uh, seeing psychiatrists and uh, psychologists testing my motor skills. And it was a three-year ordeal I would probably never wish on anybody, but I'm definitely glad. I'm glad that I went through it. It made me a better person. Um, it made me, I don't know, my outlook on life was, you know, as many things as we've gone through as a family, my wife and I, and, and, you know, and the, you know, we, I had an illness back in, in 2000 that I thought called dermatomyositis that I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kick this thing. I'm going to beat the crap out of this thing. Right. Uh, it's a muscular disorder that happens to a small percentage of people. And, um, it's uh it's an autoimmune disease, but same thing. It was like one of those where I just kept that, you know, that positivity and, you know, went into remission after eight years. 
Mm. So, but it's one of those. It uh, it gave me a new a new lease, essentially a new lease on life. To come out of it, to come out of it after three years of rehab to a point where you're normal, and you know a year later you get married and you start having kids right away. And if you can manage the stress and the the angst and everything that you do to worry about those children mm. and still you know keep a level head. Um, I think I managed through it. <laughs> right. So, right. Dude, this is so intense. Okay. Who are you okay now? Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, generally functional, all that, like, are there any long-term side effects from that nail being in your head? Well, you know, listen, the first, the first couple of years I was, I, I had uh, a sleep paralysis. Okay. I had migraines and now sleep paralysis. That is, I hate that man, but you wake up, you can't move. You feel like it's minutes that you right. can't move. Uh, but it's a matter of seconds, mm. you know? And so that was, that was terrifying in the beginning until I figured out what it was and it can come, you know, it can be stressed, stress induced. And I was dealing with a lot. I, I left that job after a year of, of working it after the accident, because I just could not work next to carpenters anymore. Mm. It was just scare the crap out of me. Um, and then the migraines, but you know, over the years, everything dissipated, you know, like I think with anything, it just, it took time. Uh, it took time for my brain to relocate things lost from scar tissue areas in, in the brain that was no longer functional to areas in the brain that, you know, that's taking on new storage. Right. Um, so it, yeah, it, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm better than good. That's interesting. All right, so uh, you recover, and you somehow manage to have a successful career and life, and you know all the normal things. I mean, dude, if you're you know twenty or whatever you were, and I'm looking at you having a four inch nail in your head, I'm like, this kid's life is over. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm a little curious about that that relentless positivity that you talked about, because I'm listen I'm reading a book right now by actually a former guest of this show, Dr. Ben Hardy. Uh, it's called The Gap and the Gain. And it talks a lot about how positivity, a positive outlook has a, he cites several studies where they showed there's actual physical uh, reactions in your body to a positive outlook. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, So yeah, talk to me about that. So, you know, you're in your twenties, you're not, you know, most 22 year olds are, are worried about the dumbest things on earth. And you're learning about like, you're worried about like relearning how to tell what time it is. Yeah. Uh, you know what, it was it, in the beginning, it was frustrating and I lashed out at pretty much everybody. I lashed out at my parents. I lashed out at people who didn't deserve it. Mm. Um, so it wasn't like overnight with the flip of a switch, I gained that positivity, but it was like anything else. You know, I, I don't know what made me come to the realization that, Hey, wow, you know, being happy feels so much better than being pissed, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. it's like when you look at the amount of energy you expend to either hate somebody or be angry with somebody or, you know, like all of those, all of those emotions and all of the energy it takes that you're so tired by within the next few hours that you need to take a nap versus putting a smile on your face and being courteous to others and having that bounce back onto you with their, with their positivity. Um, you know, I mean, dude, that's how life grows, man. Life doesn't right. grow in the dark. Um, mm. It grows up with happiness. You know? Right. I so I, I just don't know. I mean, obviously I was seeing um, 
help in the beginning, but I don't know that it was advice to me. Hey, Dan, Dan, I try to be happier. Um, but I, it was just, I, I think it was just one day I came to the realization that, you know, what am I doing? Like, you know, being upset and being, you know, and especially at people that have nothing to do with where you're at today, just why even worry about it? Why concern yourself with others at all? You know, be happy, uh, you know, be happy and supportive for the people that you care about, that are there, that care about you, that are, that surround you every day to support you. Um, and you'll get through this. And you know what, that, I mean, I won't say that we went to church every single Sunday, right? but we're a very religious family, like mm-hmm. pretty much any other Serb in the U S that, you know, right. Was, <laughs> grew up in one of the larger communities, you know? And right. I think a lot of that also impacted on um, the, the, the way I was, you know, the, the mm-hmm. optimism that I had in me. Um, and you know what, it's a sense of love, man. I mean, you have a family that's just constantly, constantly calling to see how you're doing. And I had good friends also not from the community. Um, you know, I had friends that I grown up with from when I came back to the U S um, and we were a bunch of, if you look at it, all of us, a bunch of mis- misfits, right? I had a couple of Filipino friends from South Milwaukee, a couple of Hispanic friends from Chicago, a couple of Czechs that are second or third generation, you know, like all, and we're, we were all like, nobody wanted to hang out with us, but we all hung out with each other. <laughs> right, right, right. And we turned into this band of brothers, you know? So I think that them also, their support uh, meant a lot to me during those days and created me into the person that I am today. I was actually talking about this and I've talked about this specific concept on the podcast before, but I was talking about this with one of my coworkers earlier today. Uh, One of the most profound realizations I had in my life, and I don't know if I came up with this concept or if I heard it somewhere or if it was just like a natural evolution over the years, but something clicked where I realized that there's nothing in this world that happens to you, good or bad, because there's nothing you can experience that somebody else in the 300,000 years of human existence has not experienced before. And that something somebody else in the future will not experience. Like you are not the first person mm-hmm. in history to have a four inch nail in their head. I guarantee you. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it, that, that's a fact. I'm sure we can find thousands of stories <laughs> if we tried. Yeah. So, but when you accept the fact that no experience is unique to you, that somebody before you has experienced it and somebody after you will experience it. You can accept the fact that it's just your turn. Yeah. And can you, when you can accept the fact that it's just your turn, man, for me, everything got so much easier, good and bad. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it's, it's one of those, Hey man, it's not your fault. And, uh, this isn't on purpose, but you know, this is what you're being dealt with. You just, you know, you came up. Yeah, it's just your turn, dude. Yeah, your turn yeah. line, and and eventually your turn will be over, and it'll be somebody else's turn. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so for me, that realization was super powerful. Um, yeah, and not that I was a negative person beforehand. I don't think I think I've always had a pretty strong positivity bias in general. Um, but it made me significantly less petty. It made me significantly less abrasive. It made me uh, just in general like. I just kind of go, you know, go through life, enjoying life. Yeah. And that's, it's, and it's one of, it's not, I, I think it's like you said, it's not one of those that happened overnight, but man, once you come to that realization, I, you know what? I think that even pettiness can, can take out more energy on you than anger towards one person. Mm, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, the, the constant feeling of being slighted, the constant feeling of like, yeah. who are you? Like, again, 
when you accept the fact that nothing good or bad happens, it's just your turn. You're not being slighted. It was just your turn to feel that emotion in that moment from that response. Yeah. Somebody's been an ass to someone else before in history, I promise. Exactly. Yeah. So what's interesting to me, though, is like you were tortured for 10 hours on an operating table and brain surgery, and then you willingly decided to torture yourself by going into a career in sales. What were you thinking? <laughs> um, oh, gosh, I don't know if I was thinking. Um, <laughs> okay, that, 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 nail, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Being the Bosnian that I am, right? That's right, another, right. another right. asset to it. Um, you know what? Over the course of my careers that I've had and the different verticals I've changed them in, and drastic, by the way, um, it was one of those where I, it was like, what do I have to lose? It was, I was being offered a way to live in Belgrade with my family and get paid you know, good wages to, to live there and, you know, enjoy our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, now why sales? I mean, you know, a friend of mine that I'd known for years in Milwaukee, Nick, um, his, his, his brother was one of the, one of the guys that were recruiting uh, for this position. And he's like, man, if you want to move to Belgrade, you know, he's like, it's becoming a big tech hub. And, um, I know you mentioned that you wanted to move. If you're still interested, I can put you into contact with my brother and make an interview and you, and that's, you know, see if, see if you'd like it. I'm like, but dude, I've never sold. He's like, listen, you ran your business. He's like, you're one of the first people I know that used Facebook as a marketing tool. <laughs> you Please, sold, bro. Shut up. <laughs> you sold, you know? So, <laughs> right. so I'm like, okay. Um, and then, you know, I, I started, I had, you know, the interview process went through it. Uh, they came out to Chicago on our third or fourth interview to meet me. And uh, yeah, they decided to hire me. Um, sales was in the beginning, it was like, you know, you're talking about outbound calls. You're talking about between, you know, 60 and hundred calls, emails a day. Um, we had a spreadsheet. We weren't using any platforms in the beginning. It was, it was down and dirty and like, let's build some, build a business. Right. Right. Um, and obviously a lot of things changed. We, you know, we got a CRM tool. We started getting more marketing, you know, other sales tools to help with it. But for me, the struggle in the beginning was really just selling at a completely different level because I was at my company, I was dealing with owners. I was dealing with C-levels. And then now I'm finding that it was almost a scary call performing a cold call outreach to either a C-level or a stakeholder or somebody within the company that really doesn't know you, which nobody knew doing of distributors either. Right. But for some reason, um, you know, I had that, you know, there was a level of, of anxiety uh, reaching out to folks because how do you talk about something that you've only learned six months ago? Mm. You know, I don't, I didn't know a lick of what Magenta was, what's, you know, at the time Demandware was, which is now Salesforce Commerce Cloud, what uh, Hybris was, which is owned by SAP, you know, all of these things, all of these new terms. Um, so it's one of those that I hated calling knowing them, I might get caught in a conversation where I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Mm. So it was difficult, but I ended up starting to like it, The especially when we started bringing in these enterprise-level clients um, and we were visiting on site. I mean, going to Italy, going to Amsterdam, going to all these places all over, all over Europe and even in the U.S., um, not only to close deals, but to manage the relationships with our clients. And then mm. I'm like, okay, this part of sales I know, I'm used to, I've done it for the last 15 years, 20 years, right? 
Um, it was just trying to get used to that, that entry level of um, prospect building and essentially client building after they become uh, become a client from from that prospect phase. Right, right. That's interesting. You know, every small business owner is a salesman, whether they like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I would argue that every person is a salesman because you're, even if you're an engineer, you're convincing your boss not to get fired. <laughs> yeah. Sales, yep. bro. I don't know yeah. what you want from me. We yeah. were, uh, well, and also like sales is like the ultimate cheat code to me. Like we, I actually just released an episode this week where we talked about like sales is like where all the dumb people go to like make a bunch of money. I and, heard you on that episode. <laughs> yeah. Like we're all kind of, like, I mean, I'm never going to be the brightest crayon in any box, but you know, as long as my bank account's good, <laughs> I don't really yeah. care what you think. Um, but it, it's also one of those things sometimes where like, I, you know, I meet some really impressive people who've got like a certain level of education and, you know, this, that, and other. And they're telling me like they're making like 30 grand a year or something, like something completely mm-hmm. not sustainable in 2022. And I'm like, bro, what are you doing? Go sell something. Go work at Verizon, right. man. Like, I'm telling mm-hmm. you, it's the cheat code. Uh, you'll make more than what you're making now. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and, and quite frankly, the, there's only two groups of people where I know, actually, it's really one group because one of them is going to say commercial real estate, but they're all salespeople. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only really one group of people that I've come across in my decade in finance that consistently makes seven figures where you can find them and that's sales. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting microcosm. Well, I think it also goes back to, you're right. Most everybody can sell anything because listen, you go on an interview, you're selling, selling yourself. yourself. Yep. Um, but it's a matter of, do you have passion for the services or the product or the company that you work for? Right. And if you do, then you're going to be a top seller. If you don't know what the hell they're doing, or you're just doing it because you need to get paid, you're never going to be a top seller. You probably won't even be in the mids and you're going to get fired in the first six months (laughs) of, of working the job. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, that's kind of my mindset. I, I've tried different roles when I left the the first company that uh, Weston, when we were, we were living in Belgrade and I got relocated back to Phoenix to, um, to work with our West coast clients. And then they decided to kind of um, up and just, you know, we're not going to be focusing on us anymore. And, uh, you know, a lot of changes happened internally. Um, and a couple of the guys that left the company opened up their own company and called me and said, listen, we're going to be building out um, one of the companies. That we're building up two companies. One company, Digitanity, we want you to focus on. And it'll be typical to what you were selling before, which is e-commerce. You won't be selling that, but you'll be definitely selling a lot, something similar to Staffog. Yeah. You know, a lot of staffing models. And I'm like, okay. Um, and they're like, just you know, keep your head on, take on a few different jobs and different roles, and uh, we'll call you when we're ready building out the infrastructure. I'm like, okay. Mm. So during that time, I, I did. I, I went into different sales roles, selling products, um, selling services, even you know home security. You know, just to kind of like not take on anything serious. Where because I was really, really looking forward to coming back to working with that core team that essentially all of us as a group built out that past that last company, and we killed it. I mean, we were working with some high class brands, and it right. was just fun selling. It was fun, you know, hanging out with these folks on the weekends. It was fun meeting our customers for face to face. I mean, all of it, everything was fun. And I'm like, if I land another job that I really like now, I might miss out on the opportunity to regret it. <laughs> yeah. Where they build this amazing, 
company again, and I wasn't a part of it. <laughs> so instead, you went door to door selling security systems. Yeah. So there's that narcissist of me going. Right. <laughs> um, so I I actually ended up working for um, uh, A3 Solutions or, or AAA or whatever you want to call it, but they're a division of um, of AAA Global or nationwide, and I was selling, you know. Outbound cold calling and emails, man, just uh, selling security systems, trying mm. to upgrade folks, trying to, you know, and as much as it was fun, you know, it, it didn't take much. I'm a big techie. So learning stuff about physical technology for me was fairly simple. Right. Um, and then getting to play around with it and use it for yourself. You know, it's like anything else. You own an iPhone or an Android phone. You get to learn the back end of it so much that you can help other people figure it out and troubleshoot it. That That's me. <laughs> mm. yep. um, so it was easy to sell. And then, uh, but it was just, it was the money, you know, like you, like you said, if you're not making the money, you need to go find a sales job or a, a real sales job. Right. Um, so I ended up, uh, working for iHeartMedia for about hmm. seven or eight months. And I probably would have stayed at iHeart if they didn't give me a call and said, Hey, we're ready for you now. Can hmm. you come and work for us? You know? So, so how big is the digitality now? Uh, right now, Digitanity is fairly small. Uh, we're probably around uh, 30 plus folks. Okay. And that's talking about, you know, uh, us internally that, you know, we've got recruiters and we've got that administrational uh, portion of it. But then we have a lot of the workers that are employed through Digitanity, but for other companies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And at some work. point that those companies will be absorbing them. So if you look at it, it's similar to what a staffing agency would do in the U.S., but we're providing these services in Bulgaria, in the European Union, where companies from the U.S. or the U.K. or wherever can really start up a company in, in the European Union effortlessly, like almost mm. with essentially with zero down, right? Open up right. a business as a service through us, hire these employees, see how it goes see what that profit is, that ROI at the end of the first year, two or three, and say, hey, you know, it, it's working out great. We've built out a team of 30, 40 people. They're well matured. Let's go on to the next step of absorbing this team. And then it's a matter of opening up an LTD in Bulgaria. They take over the team and then they start building on top of that base that we helped them build out. That's and pretty it's, cool. it's, you know, it's, and it's been around for a long time. When we were doing staffing, we had never even heard about it, you know, eight years ago. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's, a, it's like a co uh, co employment type model in yeah. the United States, like almost like a PEO, not a PEO because you're, well, I guess you are offering benefits or whatever it may be, but like they're employees of digitality, but being offered to the, they're basically like almost renting your employees until they yeah. can take them over. Yeah. They're yeah. Essentially they're leasing or renting the employees. Uh, in a way, I mean, we're managing the taxation, payroll, HR, all of that. Right. Um, but for all intents and purposes, they are, these employees are signing employee handbooks of that company. They're using their communication tools. They're being led by their management teams. Um, they're, our clients are in control of these folks because at right. some point, the only difference that we want our employees that we bring in to see is a transition that happens where they see a different paycheck coming to them. It, you know, the paycheck shows a different name instead of digitanity, but right. for anything else, they shouldn't feel that sensation of like, Oh my gosh, our team's being absorbed. What is that going to look like? Am I going to be displaced? Am I going to be, you know, so that's, that's what we're offering companies, um, a seamless way of building out a team with that, without that 
huge upfront half a mil or more cost to just see if it's going to work or even, you know, a couple mil, depending on what size yeah. of teams they want to start off with. Ain't it insane though? Like how many different ways there is to make money? Yeah. <laughs> like I guarantee you 99% of the people listening have never heard of the concept you just described. Well, look, I mean, we hadn't even heard of, I mean, when eight years ago, we were talking about this similar model because we'd worked, we'd worked with a company, um, uh, called, uh, uh, well, I'm not going to mention the company's name, but, uh, we'd been working with two companies that were running on at that time called Demandware, which is now Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And to one company, we were leasing out 20 employees, engineers, specifically certified Demandware engineers. And to the other company, we were leasing out 40. That's 60 employees just for two clients. And we kept on talking about it of like, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be cool if we could find a way to actually source people directly for these clients and get them employed and then hired instead of the way we're doing it? Because listen, whenever you bring in a new client, you want to put your best people on that. So we're turning around some of the best engineers on, on one account and putting them in another. And then you have a lot of frustration with the current client saying, dude, that was one of our best guys. They, they were a part of our team. You know, now we have to, you know, what, now what are we going to do? Well, don't worry. He'll be back in a month. Well, you know, we're asking you, what are we going to do tomorrow? You know, well, you're getting right. this guy. Well, there's that, you know, whole transition and learning curve that everybody has to go through. And then we talked about it. It's like, I wonder if there's a way to like just build our team specifically for clients. So not having that typical when somebody asks me and then I know that's when I know they have not listened to me at all. When I go through the entire pitch of how the build operate transfer model works and how we require the, the job descriptions and all of these things from, from clients to, to source and recruit these folks, they'll be like, well, what is your bench like? like <laughs> Dude, did you just not listen to a second of what I just told you? Like, there is no bench. We I'm don't have a it. bench. You know, we're hiring people specifically for you. We don't have people waiting you know, on the bureau going, right. okay, that, no, that's me. That's that, you know? <laughs> right. So, and it is, and it's a, it's such an easy concept. But in ways, a difficult concept to comprehend because it is so simple. Because people are like, no, it can't be. It can't be this easy. <laughs> right, right, right. You know? Well, but, but that's the thing about like all these interesting ways people make money is like a lot of times it is easy. You just yeah. have to execute. Like when you think about all the different, again, I keep going back to the sales roles because that's what my experience is. But like a lot of the stuff, it really, it, it ain't rocket science, man. Mm -hmm. It's literally just like figuring out a problem and then finding the solution. And then bringing yeah. the two people together. <laughs> That's it. It is. Uh, and, and showing the value. It, it, it's not just the solution, but actually really showing the value and figuring right. out what those pains are. But, right. um, you know, nowadays the sales sales cycles and, and the sales process are so much more complex because you're dealing with multiple stakeholders. You're dealing with. Right. Especially the larger the company yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're, uh, we call that multi-threading in sales. You got a multi-thread. You gotta, yeah. you gotta, you gotta, you might be uh, scheduling uh, five meetings in the same company with five people who have no idea that they're all meeting with you <laughs> to see who's going to be on board. And then you're like playing a, a game of chess to bring them all together <laughs> to like advocate on your behalf to the next level of leadership. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a fun game, but um, you should look, I, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, is it called challenger sales by, um, yes, I love challenger sale. Brent Adams. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I love, so, I love challenger sale. That book really it uh it, it helped me kind of like hone in on on things that i was probably doing unnaturally or or naturally i don't know 
but it really helped me realize and think through a lot of the a lot of my methods in sales. Right. Uh, Basically for folks who haven't read Challenger Sale, which you should read it if you're in any form of sales, is uh the most successful salespeople are the ones who basically nuke <laughs> a prospect's <laughs> perception of a problem. And be like, yeah, that's not really how it is. Like, let me tell you, like, that's an easy question. Now let me let me let me tell you the question you should have asked. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, like like <laughs> those like solutions. Yeah, it's it's not the people who are like the best at golfing and making buddies. Like those are actually the worst performing salespeople, according to this giant study that was done by I think it was Harvard. Like the best salespeople are the ones who are like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's. Uh, let me actually show you what's happening um, in a much more refined, you know, way. I'm I'm paraphrasing it, but it's it's super interesting and and a lot of good psychology there. Exactly. Well, you know, and I'll tell you how many years I had to be a shitty golfer just to like you know have good sales relationships. No longer. Okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm still a crappy golfer, but at least I don't have to act it anymore. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, Donna, we're coming up on time. So this, this has been super fun, but um, you know, I, it's just such a wild story. Like I said, and, and obviously there's so much more to your life than what we've discussed today. Today. Uh, we just only have so much time, but all right. So you go back to 18 year old, you're, you're still in Bihach. You're about to get ready to go to back to the United States to the Midwest. Um, knowing all that you know about yourself today and knowing all that you just know about in life and about life in general today, if you could go back to 18 year old, you one thing, what's the one thing you would tell yourself? Shut up, listen, enjoy. Um, I think that at 18, I was very subjective, uh, and, uh, very opinionated as Mm. a, as an 18 year old, uh, could be. Um, as far as listening, you know, there's so many conversations I wish that I would have, I would have had with, uh, my dad, um, mm. um, and, and even my grandparents, you know, a lot of the things that happen, like you said, you can't control in life, but right. there are regrets that you have because, wow, man, what if I went back and just kind of would have spent more time with, with these folks. Right. Yeah. Uh, my dad passed a few years back and we ended up, we, and he left, on a couple of good three years that he and I had four years. Um, right. When I moved to right before I'm going to move to Belgrade and uh, even during Belgrade, I think that he and I had more conversations in those three, four years than we'd had in our entire life. Wow. Um, and it goes back to that 18 year old of thinking that, you know, you know, everything and, and all of that. Um, and then the part about enjoying, um, and this is probably something to you. I don't know. You just recently had a daughter and, mm-hmm. um, the biggest thing is you cannot spend enough time with them. Um, mm. But don't make your feel, yourself feel bad about not being able to, but also don't put yourself in a situation that um, if you can spend the time, do it, enjoy, record, listen, do everything you possibly can because they grow up so fast. And uh, I don't know, man, I think that just experiencing life more than being obsessed about work and being obsessed about what happens if I'm not going to be a good dad? Like I obsessed about in the first year of my daughter's birth um, or what happens if this happens? It's like, it, it hasn't happened. So why obsess about it? Enjoy, shut up and enjoy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so. that's, that's powerful. Actually, what you said about record, my wife and I have actually talked about me doing a podcast with my daughter, one that we don't release to the world, one that we mm-hmm. just do internally for our family. Like just, from when she can talk to, you know, however long she wants to do it. And how cool would it be to be able to like, listen to an interview with you and your dad when you're like four? Oh my God. How cool would that, that be? be? 
and so you can watch awesome. and not just four but 14 24 whatever like you, you get to see like your evolution as a human and you know probably the part that i'm not looking forward to probably the um the de-evolution of your parent as they get older <laughs> the the you know the, the even seeing it in my parents and my in-laws like these are functioning humans who were killing it who are doing great who raise families but even seeing them get older and forgetting things and you know what mm-hmm. i mean like just kind of the circle of life yeah um that you know at some point that's going to be my turn yeah but how precious and amazing and priceless that would be for you to do something like that for your daughter that she could have forever right um, dude that's an amazing idea man i wish i would have done that with my kids now i'm pissed <laughs> yeah but i mean that's, that's seriously that's what an amazing idea yeah, that's and I've I've even thought about obviously I've got a studio at the house, but I've also got a studio I use uh, here in East Nashville. I thought about like it could just be like a daddy daughter date, like mm-hmm. we uh, we go to the studio and do it in the studio. Um, I think that'd just be really fun. So that's uh, that's my idea for it. But I I, uh, I appreciate your wisdoms and I appreciate you sharing your just banana story on the podcast. You are the first <laughs> person that's talked about having a nail on his head and having a ten hour brain surgery. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh... Like I said, it it, it was uh, an experience I wouldn't wish on anybody else, but I'm glad it I'm glad it, it made happened you who to me. you are. So. Yeah, yeah, it made you who you are. How yeah. can folks get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, well, you they can either email me or um, the the Dvignovic, which if we have to spell it out, I'm sure you'll have it on your on. Uh, I I can put it in description. The description. If you want me to, or I can just tell folks to reach out to you on LinkedIn. You're pretty responsive yeah, on absolutely. there. Absolutely, LinkedIn. I'm I'm there. Um, yeah. So Dane uh, Dane uh, Vignovic. Uh, or Dane Vig, if they go through the search on LinkedIn, uh, they'll find me. Um, log on to digitanity.com. Um, they can find me there as well. Um, gosh, or e- just email. Uh, my Gmail is dane.vig1 at gmail.com. Boom. For everybody listening, info at workwithyav.com. If you want to holler at your boy, the logosWave.com website. You know how to get a hold of me. Also, always. Constructive criticism only. Do not complain unless you got a solution. I ain't going to listen. Um, and outside of that, Donna, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks, um, Lisa. And everybody, hope you guys have a great rest of your week. And just remember, stay positive. Enjoy life. 